This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slippers. They're woolly bullies. They're really cool, they're really snuggly, and they will keep your feet warm. If you live somewhere where it's cold, awesome. If you just want to walk around your house with cool, cute little bull slippers, hey, BunnySlippers.com has you covered. So check it out. Found item dot found itemclothing.com also has your favorite I don't know cult classic t-shirts if you want to check that out so bunnyslippers.com founditemclothing.com thank you everyone for coming back to week four week five of March I I don't even know anymore but hey uh, we've got it going on and you've got it going on because you're listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And hey, if you want to help out the show real quick right now, why don't you go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and give us a you know, four or five uh, star review. Let us know what you think of the show. If you want to contact us and give us some suggestions, anything we can do to help you enjoy the show better, let us know. Okay, and that's on the contact of pgttcm.com. We're also on Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales, and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, my monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. And if you want, we can make that twice a month again. Hey, we can do that. Thank you so much for listening. Help support the show by going to pgttcm.com. Hit the links, hit the show notes, hit hit all hit up all that stuff. We got a bunch of stuff. We got Dave's stuff there. We've got Zach's stuff there. We've got interviews with Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy. Let's see, Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman and Victim Seven. So yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff, and we want more stuff with you in the future let us know what you want you want more spooky stuff do you want more ghost stories we'll get it done all right so hey how are you doing hope you're doing all right i'm doing pretty good anyone who follows me on social media knows i'm doing all right i was sick doing better but you know what here comes Arthur Mackens, the terror. Terror. Recording by Dion Johns, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Terror by Arthur Mackin. Chapter 11 at Treff Loin Farm. Let it be remembered again and again that all the while that the terror lasted, there was no common stock of information as to the dreadful things that were being done. The press had not said one word upon it. There was no criterion by which the mass of the people could separate fact from mere vague rumor, no test by which ordinary misadventure or disaster could be distinguished from the achievements of the secret and awful force that was at work. And so with every event of the passing day, a harmless commercial traveler might show himself in the course of his business in the tumble-down main street of Miros and find himself regarded with looks of fear and suspicion as a possible worker of murder, while it is likely enough that the true agents of the terror went quite unnoticed and since the real nature of all this mystery of death was unknown, it followed easily that the signs and warnings and omens of it were all the more unknown. Here was horror. There was horror. But there was no links to join one horror with another, no common basis of knowledge from which the connection between this horror and that horror might be inferred so there was no one who suspected at all that this dismal and hollow sound that was now heard of nights in the region to the north of Porth had any relation at all to the case of the little girl who went out one afternoon to pick purple flowers and never returned, or 
to the case of the man whose body was taken out of the peaty slime of the marsh, or to the case of Craddock, dead in his fields, with a strange glimmering of light about his body, as his wife reported. And it is a question as to how far the rumor of this melancholy nocturnal summons got abroad at all. Lewis heard of it, as a country doctor hears of most things, driving up and down lanes, but he heard of it without much interest, with no sense that it was in any sort of relation to the terror. Remnant had been given the story of the hollow and echoing voice of the darkness in a colored and picturesque form. He employed a Tredonoc man to work in his garden once a week. The gardener had not heard the summons himself, but he knew a man who had done so, Thomas Junkins, Pentoppen. He did put his head out late last night to see what the weather was like, and he was cutting a field of corn the next day, and he did tell me that when he was with the Methodists in Cardigan, he did never hear no singing eloquence in the chapels that was like to it. He did declare it was like a wailing of Judgment Day. Remnant considered the matter, and was inclined to think that the sound must be caused by a subterranean inlet of the sea. There might be, he supposed, an imperfect or half-opened or tortuous blowhole in the Tredonoc woods, and the noise of the tide surging up below might very well produce that effect of a hollow wailing far away. But neither he nor anyone else paid much attention to the matter, save the few who heard the call at dead of night as it echoed awfully over the black hills. The sound had been heard for three or perhaps four nights when the people coming out of Tredonoc Church after morning service on Sunday noticed that there was a big yellow sheepdog in the churchyard. The dog, it appeared, had been waiting for the congregation, for it at once attached itself to them, at first to the whole body, and then to a group of half a dozen who took the turning to the right. Two of these presently went off over the fields to their respective houses, and four strolled on in the leisurely Sunday morning manner of the country, and these the dog followed, keeping to heel all the time. The men were talking hay, corn, and markets, and paid no attention to the animal, and so they strolled along the autumn lane till they came to a gate in the hedge, whence a roughly made farm road went through the fields and dipped down into the woods and to Treff Loin Farm. Then the dog became like a possessed creature. He barked furiously. He ran up to one of the men and looked up at him as if he were begging for his life, as the man said, and then rushed to the gate and stood by it, wagging his tail and barking at intervals. The men stared and laughed. "'Whose dog will that be?' said one of them. "'It will be Thomas Griffiths, Trefloin,' said another. "'Well, then, why doesn't he go home?' "'Go home, then.' He went through the gesture of picking up a stone from the road and throwing it at the dog. "'Go home, then. Over the gate with you.' But the dog never stirred. He barked and whined and ran up to the men and then back to the gate. At last he came to one of them and crawled and abased himself on the ground and then took hold of the man's coat and tried to pull him in the direction of the gate. The farmer shook the dog off and the four went on their way. And the dog stood in the road and watched them and then put up its head and uttered a long and dismal howl that was despair. The four farmers thought nothing of it. Sheep dogs in the country are dogs to look after sheep, and their whims and fancies are not studied. But the yellow dog, he was a kind of degenerate collie, haunted the Tredonoc lanes from that day. He came to a cottage door one night and scratched at it, and when it was opened lay down, and then, barking, ran to the garden gate and waited, entreating, as it seemed, the cottager to follow him. They drove him away, and again he gave that long howl of anguish. It was almost as bad, they said, as the noise that they had heard a few nights before. And then it occurred to somebody, so far as I can make out, 
with no particular reference to the odd conduct of the trefloin sheepdog that thomas griffith had not been seen for some time past he had missed market day at porth he had not been seen at tredonoc church where he was a pretty regular attendant on sunday and then as heads were put together it appeared that nobody had seen any of the griffiths family for days and days now in a town even a small town this process of putting heads together is a pretty quick business in the country especially in a countryside of wild lands and scattered and lonely farms and cottages the affair takes time harvest was going on everybody was busy in his own fields and after the long day's hard work neither the farmer nor his men felt inclined to stroll about in search of news or gossip a harvester at the day's end is ready for supper and sleep and for nothing else and so it was late in that week when it was discovered that thomas griffith and all his house had vanished from this world i have often been reproached for my curiosity over questions which are apparently of slight importance or of no importance at all i love to inquire for instance into the question of the visibility of a lighted candle at a distance suppose that is a candle lighted on a still dark night in the country what is the greatest distance at which you can see that there is a light at all and then as to the human voice what is its carrying distance under good conditions as a mere sound apart from any matter of making out words that may be uttered they are trivial questions no doubt but they have always interested me and the latter point has its application to the strange business of treff loin that melancholy and hollow sound that wailing summons that appalled the hearts of those who heard it was indeed a human voice produced in a very exceptional manner and it seems to have been heard at points varying from a mile and a half to two miles from the farm i do not know whether this is anything extraordinary i do not know whether the peculiar method of production was calculated to increase or to diminish the carrying power of the sound again and again i have laid emphasis in this story of the terror on the strange isolation of many of the farms and cottages in marion i have done so in the effort to convince the townsman of something that he has never known to the londoner a house a quarter of a mile from the outlying suburban lamp with no other dwelling within two hundred yards is a lonely house a place to fit with ghosts and mysteries and terrors how can he understand then the true loneliness of the white farmhouses of marion dotted here and there for the most part not even on the little lanes and deep winding byways but set in the very heart of the fields or alone on huge bastioned headlands facing the sea and whether on the high verge of the sea or on the hills or in the hollows of the inner country hidden from the sight of men far from the sound of any common call there is penner hall for example the farm from which the foolish merritt thought he saw signals of light being made from seaward it is of course widely visible but from landward owing partly to the curving and indented configuration of the bay i doubt whether any other habitation views it from a nearer distance than three miles and of all these hidden and remote places i doubt if any is so deeply buried as trefloin i have little or no welch i am sorry to say but i suppose that the name is corrupted from trelwen or tref ilwen the place in the grove and indeed it lies in the very heart of dark overhanging woods a deep narrow valley runs down from the highlands of the alt through these woods through steep hillsides of bracken and gorse right down to the great marsh whence merritt saw the dead man being carried the valley lies away from any road even from that by-road little better than a bridle path where the four farmers returning from church were perplexed by the strange antics of the sheepdog one cannot say that the valley is overlooked even from a distance for so narrow is it 
that the ash groves that rim it on either side seem to meet and shut it in. I, at all events, have never found any high place from which Trafloin is visible, though looking down from the alt I have seen blue wood smoke rising from its hidden chimneys. Such was the place then to which one September afternoon a party went up to discover what had happened to Griffith and his family. There were a half a dozen farmers, a couple of policemen, and four soldiers carrying their arms. Those last had been lent by the officer commanding at the camp. Lewis, too, was of the party. He had heard by chance that no one knew what had become of Griffith and his family, and he was anxious about a young fellow, a painter, of his acquaintance, who had been lodging at Trafloin all the summer. They all met by the gate of Tredonoc churchyard and tramped solemnly along the narrow lane, all of them, I think, with some vague discomfort of mind, with a certain shadowy fear, as of men who do not quite know what they may encounter. Lewis heard the corporal and the three soldiers arguing over their orders. "'The captain says to me,' muttered the corporal, "'don't hesitate to shoot if there's any trouble.' "'Shoot what, sir?' I says. "'The trouble,' says he, and that's all I could get out of him." The men grumbled in reply. Lewis thought he heard some obscure reference to rat poison and wondered what they were talking about. They came to the gate in the hedge where the farm road led down to Trefloin. They followed this track, roughly made, with grass growing up between its loosely laid stones, down by the hedge, from field to wood, till at last they came to the sudden walls of the valley and the sheltering groves of the ash trees. Here the way curved down the steep hillside and bent southward, and followed henceforward the hidden hollow of the valley under the shadow of the trees. Here was the farm enclosure, the outlying walls of the yard, and the barns and sheds and outhouses. One of the farmers threw open the gate and walked into the yard, and forthwith began bellowing at the top of his voice, Thomas Griffith! Thomas Griffith! Where be you, Thomas Griffith? The rest followed him. The corporal snapped out an order over his shoulder, and there was a rattling, metallic noise as the men fixed their bayonets and became, in an instant, dreadful dealers out of death, in place of harmless fellows with a feeling for beer. Thomas Griffith! again bellowed the farmer. There was no answer to this summons, but they found poor Griffith lying on his face at the edge of the pond in the middle of the yard. There was a ghastly wound in his side, as if a sharp stake had been driven into his body. End of chapter 11 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah The Terror by Arthur Mackin Chapter 12 The Letter of Wrath it was a still September afternoon. No wind stirred in the hanging woods that were dark all about the ancient house of Trefloin. The only sound in the dim air was the lowing of the cattle. They had wandered, it seemed, from the fields and had come in by the gate of the farmyard and stood there melancholy, as if they mourned for their dead master. And the horses, four great, heavy, patient-looking beasts, they were there too, and in the lower field the sheep were standing, as if they waited to be fed. "'You would think they all knew there was something wrong,' one of the soldiers muttered to another. A pale sun showed for a moment and glittered on their bayonets. They were standing about the body of poor, dead Griffith, with a certain grimness growing on their faces and hardening there. Their corporal snapped something at them again. They were quite ready.' Lewis knelt down by the dead man and looked closely at the great gaping wound in his side. "'He's been dead a long time,' he said. "'A week, two weeks, perhaps. He was killed by some sharp-pointed weapon. How about the family? How many are there of them? I never attended them.' There was Griffith and his wife and his son Thomas and Mary Griffith, his daughter, and I do think there was a gentleman lodging with them this summer. That was from one of the farmers. They all looked at one another, 
this party of rescue, who knew nothing of the danger that had smitten this house of quiet people, nothing of the peril which had brought them to this pass of a farmyard with a dead man in it, and his beasts standing patiently about him, as if they waited for the farmer to rise up and give them their food. Then the party turned to the house. It was an old sixteenth-century building, with the singular round Flemish chimney that is characteristic of Marion. The walls were snowy with whitewash. The windows were deeply set and stone-mullioned, and a solid stone-tiled porch sheltered the doorway from any winds that might penetrate to the hollow of that hidden valley. The windows were shut tight. There was no sign of any life or movement about the place. The party of men looked at one another, and the church warden amongst the farmers, the sergeant of police, Lewis, and the corporal drew together. "'What is it to goodness, doctor?' said the church warden. "'I can tell you nothing at all, except that that poor man there has been pierced to the heart,' said Lewis. "'Do you think they are inside, and they will shoot us?' said another farmer. He had no notion of what he meant by they, and no one of them knew better than he. They did not know what the danger was, or where it might strike them, or whether it was from without or from within. They stared at the murdered man, and gazed dismally at one another. "'Come,' said Lewis, "'we must do something. We must get into the house and see what is wrong.' "'Yes, but suppose they are at us while we are getting in,' said the sergeant. "'Where shall we be then, Dr. Lewis?' The corporal put one of his men by the gate at the top of the farmyard, another at the gate by the bottom of the farmyard, and told them to challenge and shoot. The doctor and the rest opened the little gate of the front garden and went up to the porch and stood listening by the door. It was all dead silence. Lewis took an ash stick from one of the farmers and beat heavily three times on the old black oaken door studded with antique nails. He struck three thundering blows, and then they all waited. There was no answer from within. He beat again, and still silence. He shouted to the people within, but there was no answer. They all turned and looked at one another. That party of quest and rescue, who knew not what they sought, what enemy they were to encounter. There was an iron ring on the door. Lewis turned it, but the door stood fast. It was evidently barred and bolted. The sergeant of police called out to open, but again there was no answer. They consulted together. There was nothing for it but to blow the door open, and some one of them called in a loud voice to anybody that might be within to stand away from the door or they would be killed. And at this very moment the yellow sheepdog came bounding up the yard from the woods and licked their hands and fawned on them and barked joyfully. "'Indeed, now,' said one of the farmers, "'he did know that there was something amiss. A pity it was, Thomas Williams, that we did not follow him when he implored us last Sunday.' The corporal motioned the rest of the party back, and they stood looking fearfully about them at the entrance to the porch. The corporal disengaged his bayonet and shot into the keyhole, calling out once more before he fired. He shot and shot again. So heavy and firm was the ancient door, so stout its bolts and fastenings. At last he had to fire at the massive hinges, and then they all pushed together, and the door lurched open and fell forward. The corporal raised his left hand and stepped back a few paces. He hailed his two men at the top and bottom of the farmyard. They were all right, they said, and so the party climbed and struggled over the fallen door into the passage and into the kitchen of the farmhouse. Young Griffith was lying dead before the hearth, before a dead fire of white wood ashes. They went on towards the parlor, and in the doorway of the room was the body of the artist, Secretan, as if he had fallen in trying to get to the kitchen. Upstairs the two women, Mrs. Griffith and her daughter, a girl of eighteen, were lying together on the bed in the big bedroom, clasped in each other's arms. They went about the house, searched the pantries, the back kitchen, and the cellars,
there was no life in it. Look, said Dr. Lewis, when they came back to the big kitchen, look, it is as if they had been besieged. Do you see that piece of bacon half gnawed through? Then they found these pieces of bacon cut from the sides of the kitchen wall here and there about the house. There was no bread in the place, no milk, no water. And, said one of the farmers, they had the best water here in all Marion. The well is down there in the wood. It is most famous water. The old people did used to call it Finan Tilo. It was St. Tilo's well, they did say. They must have died of thirst, said Lewis. They must have been dead for days and days. The group of men stood in the big kitchen and stared at one another, a dreadful perplexity in their eyes. The dead were all about them, within the house and without it, and it was in vain to ask why they had died thus. The old man had been killed with the piercing thrust of some sharp weapon. The rest had perished, it seemed probable, of thirst. But what possible enemy was this that besieged the farm and shut in its inhabitants? There was no answer. The sergeant of police spoke of getting a cart and taking the bodies into Porth, and Dr. Lewis went into the parlor that Secretan had used as a sitting-room, intending to gather any possessions or effects of the dead artist that he might find there. Half a dozen portfolios were piled up in one corner. There were some books on a side-table, a fishing-rod and basket behind the door. That seemed all. No doubt there would be clothes and such matters upstairs, and Lewis was about to rejoin the rest of the party in the kitchen when he looked down at some scattered papers lying with the books on the side table. On one of the sheets he read to his astonishment the words, Dr. James Lewis, Porth. This was written in a staggering, trembling scrawl, and examining the other leaves he saw that they were covered with writing. The table stood in a dark corner of the room, and Lewis gathered up the sheets of paper and took them to the window ledge and began to read, amazed at certain phrases that had caught his eye. But the manuscript was in disorder, as if the dead man who had written it had not been equal to the task of gathering the leaves into their proper sequence. It was some time before the doctor had each page in its place. This was the statement that he read with ever-growing wonder, while a couple of the farmers were harnessing one of the horses in the yard to a cart, and the others were bringing down the dead women. I do not think that I can last much longer. We shared out the last drops of water a long time ago. I do not know how many days ago. We fall asleep and dream and walk about the house in our dreams, and I am often not sure whether I am awake or still dreaming and so the days and nights are confused in my mind. I awoke not long ago, at least I suppose I awoke, and found I was lying in the passage. I had a confused feeling that I had had an awful dream which seemed horribly real, and I thought for a moment what a relief it was to know that it wasn't true, whatever it might have been. I made up my mind to have a good long walk to refresh myself up, and then I looked around and found that I had been lying on the stones of the passage, and it all came back to me. There was no walk for me. I have not seen Mrs. Griffith or her daughter for a long time. They said they were going upstairs to have a rest. I heard them moving about the room at first. Now I can hear nothing. Young Griffith is lying in the kitchen before the hearth. He was talking to himself about the harvest and the weather when I last went into the kitchen. He didn't seem to know I was there, as he went gabbling on in a low voice very fast, and then he began to call the dog Tiger. There seems no hope for any of us. We are in the dream of death. Here the manuscript became unintelligible for half a dozen lines. Secretan had written the words, Dream of Death, three or four times over. He had begun a fresh word, and had scratched it out and then followed strange, unmeaning characters, the script, as Lewis thought, of a terrible language. And then the writing became clear, clearer than it was at the beginning of the manuscript, 
and the sentences flowed more easily, as if the cloud on Secretan's mind had lifted for a while. There was a fresh start, as it were, and the writer began again in ordinary letter form. Dear Lewis, I hope you will excuse all this confusion and wandering. I intended to begin a proper letter to you, and now I find all that stuff that you have been reading, if this ever gets into your hands. I have not the energy even to tear it up. If you read it, you will know to what a sad pass I had come when it was written. It looks like delirium or a bad dream, and even now, though my mind seems to have cleared up a good deal, I have to hold myself in tightly to be sure that the experiences of the last days in this awful place are true, real things, not a long nightmare from which I shall wake up presently and find myself in my rooms at Chelsea. I have said of what I am writing, if it ever gets into your hands, and I am not at all sure that it ever will. If what is happening here is happening everywhere else, then I suppose the world is coming to an end. I cannot understand it. Even now I can hardly believe it. I know that I dream such wild dreams and walk in such mad fancies that I have to look out and look about me to make sure that I am not still dreaming. Do you remember that talk we had about two months ago when I dined with you? We got on, somehow or other, to space and time, and I think we agreed that as soon as one tried to reason about space and time, one was landed in a maze of contradictions. You said something to the effect that it was very curious, but this was just like a dream. A man will sometimes wake himself from his crazy dream, you said, by realizing that he is thinking nonsense. And we both wondered whether these contradictions that one can't avoid if one begins to think of time and space may not really be proofs that the whole of life is a dream, and the moon and the stars bits of nightmare. I have often thought over that lately. I kick at the walls, as Dr. Johnson kicked at the stone, to make sure that the things about me are there. And then that other question gets into my mind. Is the world really coming to an end, the world as we have always known it? And what on earth will this new world be like? I can't imagine it. It's a story like Noah's Ark and the Flood. People used to talk about the end of the world and fire, but no one ever thought of anything like this. And then there's another thing that bothers me. Now and then I wonder whether we are not all mad together in this house, in spite of what I see and know, or perhaps I should say, because what I see and know is so impossible, I wonder whether we are not all suffering from a delusion. Perhaps we are our own jailers, and we are really free to go out and live. Perhaps what we think we see is not there at all. I believe I have heard of whole families going mad together, and I may have come under the influence of the house, having lived in it for the last four months. I know there have been people who have been kept alive by their keepers, forcing food down their throats, because they are quite sure that their throats are closed, so that they feel they are unable to swallow a morsel. I wonder now and then whether we are all like this in Trefloin. Yet in my heart I feel sure that it is not so. Still, I do not want to leave a madman's letter behind me, and so I will not tell you the full story of what I have seen, or believe I have seen. If I am a sane man, you will be able to fill in the blanks for yourself from your own knowledge. If I am mad, burn the letter and say nothing about it. Or perhaps, and indeed I am not quite sure, I may wake up and hear Mary Griffith calling to me in her cheerful sing-song that breakfast will be ready directly in a minute, and I shall enjoy it and walk over to Porth and tell you the queerest, most horrible dream that a man ever had and ask what I had better take. I think that it was on a Tuesday that we first noticed that there was something queer about, only at the time we didn't know that there was anything really queer in what we noticed. I had been out since nine o'clock in the morning trying to paint the marsh, 
and I found it a very tough job. I came home about five or six o'clock and found the family at Trefloin laughing at old Tiger, the sheepdog. He was making short runs from the farmyard to the door of the house, barking with quick, short yelps. Mrs. Griffith and Miss Griffith were standing by the porch, and the dog would go to them, look in their faces, and then run up the farmyard to the gate, and then look back with that eager, yelping bark, as if he were waiting for the women to follow him. Then, again and again, he ran up to them and tugged at their skirts, as if he would pull them by main force away from the house. Then the men came home from the fields, and he repeated this performance. The dog was running all up and down the farmyard, in and out of the barn and sheds, yelping, barking, and always with that eager run to the person he addressed, and running away directly, and looking back, as if to see whether we were following him. When the house door was shut, and they all sat down to supper, he would give them no peace, till at last they turned him out of doors. And then he sat in the porch and scratched at the door with his claws, barking all the while. When the daughter brought in my meal, she said, We can't think what has come to old Tiger, and indeed he has always been a good dog, too. The dog barked and yelped and whined and scratched at the door all through the evening. They let him in once, but he seemed to have become quite frantic. He ran up to one member of the family after another. His eyes were bloodshot, and his mouth was foaming, and he tore at their clothes till they drove him out again into the darkness. Then he broke into a long, lamentable howl of anguish, and we heard no more of him. End of chapter 12 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Terror by Arthur Mackin. Chapter 13. The Last Words of Mr. Secretan. I slept ill that night. I awoke again and again from uneasy M dreams, and I seemed in my sleep to hear strange calls and noises and a sound of murmurs and beatings on the door. There were deep, hollow voices, too, that echoed in my sleep, and when I woke I could hear the autumn wind, mournful, on the hills above us. I started up once with a dreadful scream in my ears, but then the house was all still, and I fell again into uneasy sleep. It was soon after dawn when I finally roused myself. The people in the house were talking to each other in high voices, arguing about something that I did not understand. It is those damned gypsies, I tell you, said old Griffith. What would they do a thing like that for, asked Mrs. Griffith, if it was stealing now? It is more likely that John Jenkins has done it out of spite, said the son. He said that he would remember you when we did catch him poaching. They seemed puzzled and angry, so far as I could make out, but not at all frightened. I got up and began to dress. I don't think I looked out of the window. The glass on my dressing table is high and broad, and the window is small. One would have to poke one's head around the glass to see anything. The voices were still arguing downstairs. I heard the old man say, well, here's for a beginning anyhow, and then the door slammed. A minute later the old man shouted, I think, to his son. Then there was a great noise which I will not describe more particularly, and a dreadful screaming, and crying inside the house, and a sound of rushing feet. They all cried out at once to each other. I heard the daughter crying, It is no good, mother. He is dead. Indeed, they have killed him. And Mrs. Griffith screaming to the girl to let her go. And then one of them rushed out of the kitchen and shot the great bolts of oak across the door, just as something beat against it with a thundering crash. I ran downstairs. I found them all in wild confusion, in an agony of grief and horror and amazement. They were like people who had seen something so awful that they had gone mad. I went to the window, looking out on the farmyard. I won't tell you all that I saw, but I saw poor old Griffith lying by the pond, 
with the blood pouring out of his side. I wanted to go out to him and bring him in, but they told me that he must be stone dead, and such things also, that it was quite plain that anyone who went out of the house would not live more than a moment. We could not believe it, even as we gazed at the body of the dead man, but it was there. I used to wonder sometimes what one would feel like if one saw an apple drop from the tree and shoot up into the air and disappear. I think I know now how one would feel. Even then, we couldn't believe that it would last. We were not seriously afraid for ourselves. We spoke of getting out in an hour or two, before dinner anyhow. It couldn't last, because it was impossible. Indeed, at twelve o'clock, young Griffith said he would go down to the well by the back way and draw another pail of water. I went to the door and stood by it. He had not gone a dozen yards before they were on him. He ran for his life, and we had all we could do to bar the door in time. And then I began to get frightened. Still, we could not believe in it. Somebody would come along shouting in an hour or two, and it would all melt away and vanish. There could not be any real danger. There was plenty of bacon in the house, and half the weekly baking of loaves, and some beer in the cellar, and a pound or two of tea, and a whole pitcher of water that had been drawn from the well the night before. We could do all right for the day, and in the morning it would have all gone away. But day followed day, and it was still there. I knew Treff Loin was a lonely place. That was why I had gone there, to have a long rest from all the jangle and rattle and turmoil of London that makes a man alive and kills him too. I went to Treff Loin because it was buried in the narrow valley under the ash trees, far away from any track. There was not so much as a footpath that was near it. No one ever came that way. Young Griffith had told me that it was a mile and a half to the nearest house, and the thought of the silent peace and retirement of the farm used to be a delight to me. And now this thought came back without delight, with terror. Griffith thought that a shout might be heard on a still night up away on the alt, if a man was listening for it he added doubtfully. My voice was clearer and stronger than his, and on the second night I said I would go up to my bedroom and call for help through the open window. I waited till it was all dark and still, and looked out through the window before opening it, and then I saw over the ridge of the long barn across the yard what looked like a tree, though I knew there was no tree there. It was a dark mass against the sky with widespread boughs, a tree of thick, dense growth. I wondered what this could be, and I threw open the window, not only because I was going to call for help, but because I wanted to see more clearly what the dark growth over the barn really was. I saw in the depth of the dark of it points of fire and colors in light, all glowing and moving, and the air trembled. I stared out into the night, and the dark tree lifted over the roof of the barn and rose up in the air and floated towards me. I did not move till at the last moment when it was close to the house, and then I saw what it was and banged the window down only just in time. I had to fight, and I saw the tree that was like a burning cloud rise up in the night and sink again and settle over the barn. I told them downstairs of this, they sat with white faces. And Mrs. Griffith said that ancient devils were let loose and had come out of the trees and out of the old hills because of the wickedness that was on the earth. She began to murmur something to herself, something that sounded to me like broken down Latin. I went up to my room again an hour later, but the dark tree swelled over the barn. Another day went by, and at dusk I looked out, but the eyes of the fire were watching me. I dared not open the window. And then I thought of another plan. There was the great old fireplace with the round Flemish chimney going high above the house. If I stood beneath it and shouted, 
I thought perhaps the sound might be carried better than if I called out of the window. For all I know, the round chimney might act as a sort of megaphone. Night after night, then, I stood in the hearth and called for help from nine o'clock to eleven. I thought of the lonely place deep in the valley of the ash trees, of the lonely hills and lands about it. I thought of the little cottages far away and hoped that my voice might reach to those within them. I thought of the winding lane high on the alt and of the few men that came there of nights, but I hoped that my cry might come to one of them. But we had drunk up the beer and we would only let ourselves have water by little drops and on the fourth night my throat was dry and I began to feel strange and weak. I knew that all the voice I had in my lungs would hardly reach the length of the field by the farm. It was then we began to dream of wells and fountains and water coming very cold in little drops out of rocky places in the middle of a cool wood. We had given up all meals. Now and then one would cut a lump from the sides of bacon on the kitchen wall and chew a bit of it, but the saltiness was like fire. There was a great shower of rain one night. The girl said we might open a window and hold out bowls and basins and catch the rain. I spoke of the cloud with burning eyes. She said, we will go to the window in the dairy at the back and one of us can get some water at all events. She stood up with her basin on the stone slab in the dairy and looked out and heard the splashing of the rain falling very fast and she unfastened the catch of the window and had just opened it gently with one hand for about an inch and had her basin in the other hand. And then, said she, there was something that began to tremble and shudder and shake as it did when we went to the choral festival at St. Tielo's. And the organ played, and there was the cloud and the burning close before me. And then we began to dream, as I say. I woke up in my sitting room one hot afternoon when the sun was shining and I had been looking and searching in my dream all through the house and I had gone down to the old cellar that wasn't used, the cellar with the pillars and the vaulted room, with an iron pike in my hand. Something said to me that there was water there and in my dream I went to a heavy stone by the middle pillar and raised it up and there beneath was a bubbling well of cold, clear water, and I had just hollowed my hand to drink it when I woke. I went into the kitchen and told young Griffith. I said I was sure there was water there. He shook his head, but he took up the great kitchen poker, and we went down to the old cellar. I showed him the stone by the pillar, and he raised it up, but there was no well. Do you know I reminded myself of many people whom I have met in life? I would not be convinced. I was sure that, after all, there was a well there. They had a butcher's cleaver in the kitchen, and I took it down to the old cellar and hacked at the ground with it. The others didn't interfere with me. We were getting past that. We hardly ever spoke to one another. Each one would be wandering about the house, upstairs and downstairs each one of us, I suppose, bent on his own foolish plan and mad design, but we hardly ever spoke. Years ago I was an actor for a bit, and I remember how it was on first nights, the actors treading softly up and down the wings by their entrance, their lips moving and muttering over the words of their parts, but without a word for one another. So it was with us. I came upon young Griffith one evening, evidently trying to make a subterranean passage under one of the walls of the house. I knew he was mad, as he knew I was mad when he saw me digging for a well in the cellar, but neither said anything to the other. Now we are past all this. We are too weak. We dream when we are awake, and when we dream we think we wake. Night and day come and go and we mistake one for another. I hear Griffith murmuring to himself about the stars when the sun is high at noonday, and at midnight I have found myself thinking that I walked in bright sunlit meadows beside cold rushing streams that flowed from high rocks. Then at the dawn figures in black robes 
carrying lighted tapers in their hands, pass slowly about and about, and I hear great rolling organ music that sounds as if some tremendous rite were to begin, and voices crying in an ancient song shrill from the depths of the earth. Only a little while ago I heard a voice which sounded as if it were at my very ears, but rang and echoed and resounded as if it were rolling and reverberated from the vault of some cathedral, chanting in terrible modulations. I heard the words quite clearly. Incipit liber ire domini de nostri. Here beginneth the book of the wrath of the Lord our God. And then the voice sang the word, Aleph, prolonging it, it seemed through ages, and a light was extinguished as it began the chapter. In that day, saith the Lord, there shall be a cloud over the land, and in the cloud a burning, and a shape of fire, and out of the cloud shall issue forth my messengers. They shall run altogether, they shall not turn aside. This shall be a day of exceeding bitterness, without salvation. And on every high hill, saith the Lord of hosts, I will set my sentinels, and my armies shall encamp in the place of every valley. In the house that is amongst rushes I will execute judgment, and in vain shall they fly for refuge to the munitions of the rocks. In the groves of the trees, in the places where the leaves are as a tent above them, they shall find the sword of the slayer, and they that put their trust in walled cities shall be confounded. Woe unto the armed man! Woe unto him that taketh pleasure in the strength of his artillery, for a little thing shall smite him, and by one that hath no might shall he be brought down into the dust. That which is low shall be set on high. I will make the lamb and the young sheep to be as the lion from the swellings of Jordan. They shall not spare, saith the Lord, and the doves shall be as eagles on the hill and Gedi. None shall be found that may abide the onset of their battle. Even now I can hear the voice rolling far away, as if it came from the altar of a great church, and I stood at the door. There are lights very far away in the hollow of a vast darkness, and one by one they are put out. I hear a voice chanting again with that endless modulation that climbs and aspires to the stars and shines there and rushes down to the dark depths of the earth, again to ascend. The word is Zane. Here the manuscript lapsed again, and finally into utter lamentable confusion. There were scrawled lines wavering across the page, on which Secretan seemed to have been trying to note the unearthly music that swelled in his dying ears. As the scrapes and scratches of ink showed, he had tried hard to begin a new sentence. The pen had dropped at last out of his hand upon the paper, leaving a blot and a smear upon it. Lewis heard the tramp of feet along the passage. They were carrying out the dead to the cart. End of chapter 13